Hey, go ahead. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to be skipping all over the place today in terms of our, our passages and our text, but I want to anchor us at the very beginning someplace. And so you can go to Romans 5. Um, before we begin, before we unpack what we're going to unpack uh, this week, this is our third week in our uh, One Story, One Savior series. It's our Advent series. And uh, before we do that, I, I just want to talk about us, uh, us celebrating this five-year anniversary because again, like I mentioned at the beginning, uh, it, it's kind of a, a bit of a surreal thing. And if you were part of that, you know, 11-person core team uh, from the beginning, um, this just feels straight up like a mega church now, right? We're running about, you know, 200 people. And uh, so for us, this, this feels like, oh my gosh, it's, it's grown. But, you know, I, I was thinking back to the beginning and, you know, what we wanted, what our intention was, especially for those of you who weren't there in the beginning, is we, we really wanted something simple uh, instead of slick. And, you know, some of you guys look around and go, well, you certainly achieved that, Ronnie. Uh, um, but, it's, uh, but, but again, and, and it wasn't because, you know, people that do more slick productions at church, that there's anything inherently wrong with that. So it, it kind of sets us up, if I'm not careful, that we're, you know, we're the, we're the hipster snobby, you know, we just keep it so stripped down. That wasn't really the issue. The issue is that we wanted to keep it simple uh, and stripped down and, and sort of steer away from slickness because we wanted to, to just focus our concentration on being gospel-centered, and, and that's a line that we use a lot. In fact, we just sang in Christ Alone, which is a very gospel-centered uh, song. We want to lead out, our intention was to lead out with the gospel so that we can actually live out the gospel. And so one of the ideas, in, in the, if you were part of that core team that we talked a lot about, was how do we do that? How, how, do, we make, how do we make everything saturated in the gospel? So by God's grace, um, man, that's what we've endeavored to do, certainly imperfectly. Um, and we're learning how to do that together, which is uh, what we believe um, gives God glory. And man, it's been, it's been an amazing thing to see the way that God has grown uh, this church, not just grown us in terms of people. That's actually been pretty slow and steady, but just looking at individual lives and seeing the way that God has just grown us in grace and in knowledge and in mercy. In what? Well, in, in the gospel in knowing more about who this Savior is that we collectively gather together every Sundays and then midweek in our community groups to worship. Who is this person, Jesus? Um, so, uh, man, that's been, it's been a great thing to, to, to be a part of, of that. And I, and I hope you guys have seen some of my progress um, and, and you've seen some of the ways that I've grown as well. And again, we're, we're probably missing things, like every church misses certain things. By emphasizing certain things, we're we're dismissing others, others, so I'm, I'm grateful to God for all of you. I'm grateful for your support, for your care. And again, not just for me, but for the body. When we think about the ways that you guys have, have loved each other, man, it's a sight to behold, to see the way that you care for one another in all these different ways. Um, it's been an, an amazing thing. And again, you know, um, some of these things, you know, uh, going back to this idea that we're not slick, I mean, we're, we're not, right? We, we still don't have a lot of amenities. You know, we still got the one bathroom you know, in the corner that we make all kinds of jokes about, but like, that's painful. That's a real thing. <laughs> like there's a real line that some of y'all are going to have to wait in after, after services today, you know? Um, I remember if you guys were here in the old days, you know, it was like, gee, Ronnie, are we ever going to get air conditioning? Because it, it gets a little like warm in the summer and you, you look like you just hitchhiked through the Sahara Desert, you know, after some of your sermons, you know? So we were dealing with some of that. In fact, just the other night, the elders are gathering together here on Monday. We're like over in that corner. You should have seen us. We're sitting in those couches. We're all wearing like our, our full like North Face parkas, like shivering to death to meet for, you know, our, our monthly, uh, you know, elders meeting. And um, so I just want you to know that we keep it real here for you, right? 
week, at, week after week, right? These are, these are real things. And um, so, I, man, I just think about all these different things. Nothing's perfect. And yet here we are. We've gathered together. There's been a joy um, in our gathering and in our relationships and in our serving and loving and getting to know Christ just that much more. And so I'm excited to be here. I thank you uh, for making this your church home. It's been an amazing and amazing journey, and, I, and I, hope it, I hope it continues at least five more years, you know, before we just throw the whole thing in, and I'm kidding right now. I thank you that you've tolerated my preaching. I always say a good sermon is when I'm not afraid to look at my wife while I preach, and uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't happen all, all too often. So again, thanks for, thanks for being here. Well, hey, let's begin. We, we started, we began our series, remember, a couple of weeks ago by asking uh, the question of, of how do we approach the Bible. You know, when we open up this book, how do we view this book? How do we approach this book? For some of us, it just represents, uh, you know, this, this picture that we had of growing up, going to Sunday school. It's just a bunch of nice stories that we memorized, right? About like giant men that, that you know, got knocked down by slingshots and, you know, dudes in caves not getting eaten by lions. And we, we have that sort of that Sunday school sort of uh, approach to how, to how we even open God's Word. Or for some of us, it's just wisdom like nuggets, Right? We think, man, I'm going to open, this, open the Word, I'm going to point down, and there's going to be some nugget of wisdom for me to, to take, you know, do a little post-it note on my, on my dashboard. And for some of us, it's, it's just some motivation, right? Man, I, gotta, I need something for inspiration. I need something that's going to get me going in the morning. So if I open this book, man, especially in the middle where they have the Psalms and the Proverbs, you know, I'm going to get some motivational word for some of us. And it's a bit of a, like a magic eight ball approach, right? You know, if I can just find this one little catchphrase, you know, and if I, if I can just, you know, grit my teeth and clench my fists, maybe this is the thing that's going to fix my problem. It's going to give me that, that self-help tip that I so want. For some of us, man, it's this just book that just sits on the shelf that we know we're supposed to read. And, you know, good golly, if we would just read it, it would alleviate most of the guilt that we feel. But what we see, and hopefully what you have been seeing as we've been going through uh, scripture is that this, this book, this 66 books, this, this story is actually one story. It's God's grand narrative. It's basically a drama that is being played out in four acts. We talked about creation, the fall we looked at last week, and then this week, redemption, and then next week, restoration. So remember the first week, we talked about creation. We went through Genesis 1 and 2 very briefly. We just kind of skimmed the top of it, and we, we looked at the fact that God created everything, that everything was good. And not only that, but that we were created as image bearers of God's goodness. So God had a particular plan and intention in place when he began. And then we got to the next week, we got to the fall of mankind, just called the fall or rebellion. And we saw God's creation, God's first creation, Adam and Eve, rebel against their creator. They committed what we call cosmic treason against God. And then everything that followed was this downsizing and decay of all of the good things that God had put into place, right? So we see murder come into the picture now. We see death come into the picture. We see men treating men poorly, right? It turns into slavery and rebellion. So what we're seeing is that human flourishing, the way God decided, intended, and desired for everything to be, it now just flounders. And so we just flounder. Human flourishing is something that has to be worked at. It's not something that just is because everything was in a state of perfection, right? So right now, man, if you walked into my house, some of you did on Friday night, and you probably noticed that my Christmas tree is leaning. 
right? It's just like it's leaning like four or five inches. Now, don't judge me, man. Don't judge me because I have straightened that tree. I've straightened that tree many. In fact, like I got one of those stands that has like, the, you know, the 28 screws at the bottom. So, you know, me being a shortcut guy, I'm like, you know, man, this tree's light. I'll just do the top screws. That didn't work, right? So I've just kept adding screws to this thing. And it doesn't matter what I do. The thing, it, it just leans, right? Don't anyone come up to me after the service and give me all, get all math on me, right? Like I'm not, I'm not in the mood to like become an engineer. It's a tree, right? Um, the point is this. Dude, I can't fix it. I cannot fix it. And even if I could straighten this Christmas tree that I love with a lot of my heart, that's not really the problem, right? The problem is not that I got a crooked Christmas tree. The problem is that I have a dying Christmas tree. It's been uprooted, right? It's been cut. I mean, dude, I can drown. I can drown that thing in life preserver till that stuff's just like running down my hallways, right? But it needs supernatural help, that tree. And again, this is all to say that it just describes the human condition. It goes back to what we mentioned last week, man. We are the people equivalent of our automobiles where we think that all we need is a lube, oil, and filter, and we'll be good as new. We tend to think of ourselves that way, right? When we look in the mirror, man, I just need a little updating. I just need a little refilling, but what we learned last week is that we are in far worse condition than we can imagine. And what's amazing is that God could have shut down the entire production after Act 2, after the fall. He could have said, that's it. Man, I made you. My command was to obey me. The day you obeyed me, you were going to die. And when that happens, that's it. But he didn't do that. And in fact, he didn't do two things after Adam and Eve sinned. Number one, he didn't end the human race. And we know that because we're all here. Number two, he didn't leave the human race as is. So number one, he didn't end it. And number two, he just didn't leave it as is. He staged a third act, which is called redemption. God knew that none of us could escape helplessness, but he provided a way to escape hopelessness. That's what he did. So what is redemption? What is this word that just gets tossed around? We use that word a lot. That word is, like informs a lot of the songs we sing. I probably use that word. Hopefully I use that word, like in every sermon. I mean, if I ever have a sermon where I don't use that word, like all you guys should come up and say, like, what's the deal? Are you not preaching the gospel, Ronnie? So every sermon, everything that we say should revolve around this idea of redemption. What the heck is it then? Well, it's a word that simply means deliverance or rescue. And in fact, if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, you go back to the book of Exodus, when God delivered his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt, that's what he was doing. He was redeeming them. He was delivering them. He was rescuing them from something that they had no power in and of themselves to accomplish. So the question then is, what are we being delivered or rescued from? What is this thing? Like, Ronnie, we hear every week, you know, we just sang, come ye sinner. Like, we get it. We preach sin here. But what? What, is, what are we being rescued and delivered from? And the answer might surprise you, because if I did a poll, and I said, hey, so just tell me, what do you think um, God has delivered us and rescued us from? Most of us would say, well, probably from our sins, right? Or he's delivered and he's rescued us from the reality and the potentiality of hell. But it's actually interestingly enough, it's something much bigger than that. 
So let's go to Romans 5, 6 through 11, and this is where we're going to begin, and then I'm going to go through a bunch of other scriptures. Um, But this is what Romans 5, 6 through 11 says, this letter from Paul to the Romans. He said, for while we were still weak, you get that? While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Then he says in verse 9, listen, he goes, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And then he says in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So just to say, well, you know, it's just, you know, I'm kind of a sinner and, you know, I struggle with some things. And so when God came down to die, what he did was he just came just to wipe my slate clean. Now there's truth in that, but it goes a little bit deeper, right? Because in verse 9 he says, We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. Oh, that's a popular one to roll with, to lead with. In modern American evangelical church right now, that's what it says. So to be redeemed means to be saved from God's wrath because God wouldn't be God if he tolerated sin, right? If he acted unjustly, if he let sin go unpunished, He wouldn't be God. Now, here's the thing. On paper, the world wants a God like that. And by a God like that, I mean not a God like that. Not a God of wrath. We don't like that. That's not something that serves our destinies very well at all, does it? But the second, listen, the second we want peace on earth and goodwill toward men, our sin completely obliterates our ability to achieve it. You don't believe me? I mean, just wake up tomorrow. Like, wake up tomorrow and, like, read any newspaper, watch any news outlet, read anything on Twitter. There is no peace on earth. There is no goodwill toward men when God's wrath hasn't been dealt with. Right? The Bible explicitly illustrates that the only way peace the only way justice, the only way goodwill, these things that we long for, that we crave, that we desire, that are just inherent in us, the only way those things will ever be experienced is through a God who is fiercely committed to his glory above all other things. One commentator said it like this, God's wrath is his love in action against sin. You don't want a God who is not wrathful against sin. Because it means ultimately those things that we desire most and those things that are still inherent to us like justice and peace and mercy, it's almost impossible that they can come true. And if they do come true in pockets, there's going to be no sustaining of those things. So as sinners who committed cosmic treason against God, man, this is awkward for us, right? This puts us in an awkward position. It puts us in a place of total helplessness. Which, by the way, the Bible tells us is inescapable and it leads us to total hopelessness. We need outside help. We need outside 
help. We need something to intervene, right? So I remember this one time I used to drive trucks for a living back in the day. And I remember when you're in California and it rains, this funny thing happens. Number one, the, the roads get super slick. Um, everybody treats it like a snowstorm, so they all stay home. Everybody gets off the road. And I know it's incredible. There are, it's, it, it's incredible being here and having been all like, you know, kind of gotten some calluses with that now, right? But this is what used to happen. So one day I'm driving my truck. It just started to rain. I'm going a little too fast. And I hit on the brakes and I just start sliding. I start sliding and there's all these cars in front of me and I'm in a rather big truck, right? So I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just sliding, right? So I turn the wheel. My entire truck goes over like the center divider. Now I'm just going the opposite way towards traffic coming at me, right? Like what's the deal? Either it's stopped in front of me or it's coming towards me. I don't know. And I'm, I'm literally like my, my life is flashing before my eyes and I hit this dry patch. I finally hit a dry patch and I stopped sliding and I'm able to just swerve and get over to the side of the road before I made contact and harmed anybody. I needed outside intervention. And it was given to me actually by God in that moment through this dry patch in the road that if you would have looked around you would have been miraculous to find, man. That was like a needle in a haystack. And yet I found that help that I needed to avoid destruction and disaster. That's what redemption is. Redemption is this moment where God said, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to deliver you. So what I want to do is I want to talk about this. I want to talk about some significant things about God's redemptive plan. Three things, three significant things about God's redemptive plan, right? We want to ask that question, right? What is so significant about that. What is so significant about this third act in God's divine drama that he calls redemption? Number one, the first thing is this, is that his plan was a person. His plan was a person. Genesis 3.15, remember last week when uh, the prophecy by God was given, uh, when he said, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And it was the first time really the gospel was sort of stated in the sense that God was saying, hey, the seed of the woman, this child that someday I'm going to send is going to obliterate this one small, tiny fist bump of victory that Satan has achieved. That's what he was saying. He was saying someday there's going to be a someone that is going to eradicate what just happened, Adam. That's what he said. Then we get to Isaiah 7.14, one of the Old Testament prophets. And we get one of these famous Christmas passages. This is Isaiah prophesying. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear who? Bear a son, bear a person, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we get to Isaiah chapter 9, which reminds us, For to us a what? A child is born, a person is born. To us, it says a son is given. So God takes this idea of redemption and he takes it out of the theoretical and he doesn't want it to be theoretical for us. He doesn't want it just to be a plan. I hate even using the word plan because the plan is a person. It's a person. Matthew 1.21, when the angel was visiting Mary, this supernatural occurrence when Mary is learning that she is going to bear the Son of God. He says, she shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from 
their sins. There it is, explicit, right there. A person is coming to do the rescue work. In Luke 1, 31-33, it says, And behold, you will conceive in your room, talking to Mary, and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So, so God didn't just send a problem solver, right? That's how we look at these things in our Western eyes, right? But that's not who God is. God is not this cosmic mechanic, right? He's not a cosmic handyman who sent out his top technician to diagnose and then fix the issue. That's not what happened here. It's profoundly worse than that, right? Because we might be alive physically, but the Bible tells us that we are spiritually dead upon conception. That's why if you, you, know, if you got all caught up in all like, like the zombie hype that's been happening, you're watching Walking Dead and, and all these like apocalyptic zombie movies, it's a great illustration to who we are before Christ. Right? We're walking around. We, from a distance, you know, we, we look like we're alive, but in fact, we are dead spiritually. Psalm 51.5, David wrote, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother conceive me? Like, that doesn't give any leeway, right? David's not saying I was born, everything was okay, and then I got into the terrible twos and it all went south. You guys are all like amening me on that one right now. I know you are. He's saying, no, my mother conceived me. It was there. The DNA was there because why? Because we're related to Adam. That's why, right? So because of that, the issue then is that none of us seek God upon conception and birth. Psalm 51.3, again, David, they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Merry Christmas, welcome to Substance Church, you know? It's ins- you know, but that's what it says. So God shows his love for who? Well, for us, for the ungodly. By doing what? By sending God the Son to redeem us, to do this, God the Son had to be both fully human and fully God. And that's where we get into this idea that he sent a person. God had to be both fully human and fully God, which is this word called the hypostatic union. Now listen, I didn't get this word from a, a science journal to make you all think that I know things, right? This is, this is the technical term, the hypostatic union. Now here's the deal with this word. Jesus had to be fully man and fully God for redemption to be accomplished, all right? So he had to be fully human so that he could represent us as a human before God. Hebrews 4.13 tells us, in every respect, he's been tempted as we are, yet, it says, without sin. So Jesus was fully human, but he also needed to be fully God to accomplish for us what we needed as humans, which was a righteousness before God that was lost in the fall. So Now, let's not relegate God's redemptive plan to just being conceptual, to just being something that sort of gives us some confidence because we feel like, man, I don't don't, don't really understand what's going on in the Bible. Man, I'm still working out a lot of these things. All I know is that I prayed a prayer and I'm in. Because there's a lot of people that have prayed prayers that aren't in. Why? Because we're talking about a person here. 
we're talking about a person that we need to connect with the way that we connect with people. So we don't want to relegate God's redemptive plan to being conceptional. Jesus was fully human and fully God. And again, that doesn't mean he's two people. He's not. He's one person, but he has two natures. And by the way, that exists forever with Jesus. Let this help you. Because this is astoundingly good news. Let this help you. Let it help you. When the medicine, listen, when the medicine stops working, when your efforts are failing, and they will, when hope comes screeching to a halt, when the money has dried up, when you have lost a loved one, and you will, when your body is racked with pain, when everything that could go wrong goes wrong, there is a concept, there's a person. There's a person who understands, who has walked in your shoes, who has experienced your heartache. So for those of you who feel like you're drowning in weakness and frailty, you don't have to be hopeless. For those of you who are skeptics, what about that? For those of you who are on the fence, for those of you who are unsure, for those of you who are like me and you doubt, God invites you to a white paper on the redemptive plan of God. Well, yeah, a little bit, but more than that, he invites you to himself because the Bible is not merely a religious version of Google. That's not what it is. It's meant to unite you with its author. So God's plan of redemption, number one, his plan is a person. Two, his plan was accomplished through humility. And that's something that's unusual. That's something that doesn't actually like sit with us very well because it's not the way that we typically see things laid out. I don't know, like watch one of the 19 Avenger movies that came out last year. That's not how we typically see heroes come onto the scene, right? What are we talking about, this plan of redemption being accomplished through humility? Well, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about a birth that happened in a town smaller than Ashland, in a stable to parents with no money, no nobility, not known for anything, who everyone thought had gotten pregnant out of wedlock. What would we do with those people now? Well, I'll tell you, we'd have reservations, that's for sure. Nothing recorded about Jesus' life between the ages of 1 and 12. And then after 12, we get this little blip about this instance that happened with him in the temple, and then we get nothing about his life until the age of 30 where he enters the public ministry. And then what happens? He goes three years and dies the most humiliating and excruciating criminal death that anybody has ever experienced in the history of mankind. So here's what I want to say about that, right? Nobody on paper banks on Jesus. Nobody banks on this. This is not the redemptive plan that you, me, or anybody lays out as being how the world gets saved. Isaiah 53.3, he is despised and rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. Matthew 11.29, not only that, he is gentle he is lowly in heart. The dude is not Aquaman, right? Mark 10, 45, he came not to be served, but to serve the creator of the universe. 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8, though he was rich, yet for your sake, Paul says, he became poor so that by his what? By his poverty, we might become rich. Now let that encourage you because I know as well as you know about me that not many of us come from noble birth, right? And what the Bible tells us is that that nobility or that birth or that, that past that we come from that makes us look extra special and extra wide and extra successful in the eyes of the world is fine because that's the path that God has put some of us on. But that's not what brings us into peace and comfort with God. It's not your status in this world that justifies or redeems you. Jesus said in Mark 2.17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He said, who did I come to call? I came not to call the righteous. I came to call sinners, right? So you don't have to amount to something to be accepted by the one who created everything. You have to understand who you really are when you come before God. So his plan was a person. It was accomplished through humility. And finally, his plan happens to be the only way. It happens to be the only way. In John 14, 6, Jesus laid out. He said this in no uncertain terms. Right? So just understand, like sometimes I say things and I go, you know, it could be like this. I use the word kinda a lot, which drives my wife up a wall. And I say, you know, I'm not sure, but maybe this is not the tone that Jesus had when he makes this statement, right? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So just in case we think Jesus is one thing but not all things, this one kind of clears that up for us, right? No one, he says, comes to the Father except through me, buddy boy. Added for emphasis. So this is the rub, right? This is the rub for you and for me. This is the rub. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes. There's nothing else to be done. Now, we, we, we go there intellectually, right? If we've grown up in the church and we've heard this verse and many other verses that emphasize that Jesus is the only path to salvation, man, we, we, like we buy into that mentally. We have a much harder time living that out, right? So if anybody were to peer into some of our lives, right, if we were to like open the doors of our house, if we were to open up our, our checkbooks, if anybody uses those things anymore, you know, if, if we were to open up those things that give everybody a very deep and intimate look into our lives, what would they see? Would they be see somebody who goes, no, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father. There's nothing in my life that's trying to emphasize something else to get me somewhere with him. I don't know. I don't think so. And that's the rub. What did Jesus pray on the night before his death? Jesus said, God, can there be another way? And Luke 22, 42 said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He knew what he was about to face. And then he said this, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. God told Jesus, no. He said, there is no other way. And this is the point of redemption for hopeless sinners who finally see that they're helpless. We get to a place where we say, God, I can't. Not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. Some of you guys go, well, man, don't we have a free will? Ronnie, I never hear you talking about free will much in this church. Don't we have a free will? Yeah, we do. And you know what? It does nothing but freely sin. We, we can get all theological after the service. You want to you know, tread those waters, go down that path. I would love to do that. 
but we do have a free will. It only sins freely until it's been transformed to do the will of God the Father. That's it. It's a will that leaves us insecure and grasping for some kind of assurance too because of those things. So God's plan was a person. It was laid out in humility. And the cross is where our story goes from insecurity to security and from uncertainty to assurance. Redemption provides us with these two realities. And that's where we're going to end today. It provides us with security and it provides us with assurance. So there's an invitation this morning. There's an invitation to rest and there's an invitation to hope. Because the gospel, because redemption provides two things for us, security and assurance. Redemption is no good if it's not secure, man. It's no good. Our salvation is secure because no one can take it from us, including ourselves. This one moment that the Watsons like to remind me of all the time when my wife baked this delicious cake and uh, I was, man, I, you know, I, I try to have one, maybe three or four pieces. And then what I like to do is I try to give away the rest of the dessert so that I don't eat the whole thing. And it was, uh, it was my favorite cake, this coconut cake. So I said, hey, Watsons, why don't I drop this thing off? You know, there's still three quarters of it left. And they said, sure, because they're greedy. Um, it's really disappointing. All the time we've had together. I dropped the cake off. Um, it was the morning time. I come back that night. I'm like, babe, I've got, I, I gave him too much of the cake. I said, I gave him too much of the cake. She said, well, I told you to keep a piece back. I know. I said, but I'm like trying right now, right? And so I called the Watsons and I said, hey, do you, uh, do you happen to have any of that cake left? And um, one thing I discovered is that Jillian is super stingy <laughs> once she's been given something. And she said, yeah, we do. And I said, well, I'm going to come over and grab a piece. And she was really upset about that. And so I did and I enjoyed it and they have held that against me ever ever since. Um, that, is, uh, that is the opposite picture of our salvation. Really, really horrible illustration. You guys have to forgive me on that one. Please come back next week, right? It's one of those. Um, John 10, 28 through 29, this is what Jesus said. He said, listen, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Where else are you going to get that kind of return? Where else do you get that kind of a promise? They will never perish and no one, listen, this is the good news. No one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So man, one thing that the gospel provides us with is security. Ultimate security. Real security. Not the way that we define security, which is always reaches a ceiling, always has a limit, only goes as far as somebody can break in to something, Right? And listen, Christmas time for you guys, for me, and just ignore my Instagram, right? Christmas time can be heavy laden, right? It can seem to just compound our burdens, right? We need twice the money. We need twice the patience. We need like eight times the love, right? We feel pressure with the new year coming. So we start doing all the same things we start doing every year, right? We start all of our physical and spiritual plotting and scheming. And this year I'm going to get motivated, right? There's that new CrossFit gym. I'm going to be checking into that every morning. I'm going to eat better. I'm going to budget better. I'm going to finally shed some bad habits. 
I'm going to do my Bible in a year plan. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to come to church more than twice a month. Here's the reality, man, is that there's a great chance that none of those things are going to happen, like after January 15th, right? And when they don't, your security in Jesus Christ has not shifted a nanometer. You guys get that? Like all those things, man, they don't justify you. Some of you need to know that. Like Peter needed to know that after he boasted to Jesus that he would die for him and then betrayed him like an hour later. Some of you need to know that. If Christ has redeemed you, it means God's wrath has been removed once and for all. So when sin or humanness or frailness or fragility creates insecurity in you, you know you have something truer than your feelings to provide you with rest. But that also means not treating Jesus like just another asset in your life. You know, let's see here. I have a good retirement plan, check, salvation, check, great. I can just live my life and not have to think about it anymore, right? That's like bookshelf Christianity. It's treating Jesus like a book on your shelf. I have it. It's there. When I need it, I'll grab it. I'll read it. I'll see how it helps me. But dude, I'm not walking around just thinking about that book on the shelf. It really doesn't play into my life. We do that with Jesus because we've depersonalized him in our lives. John 14, 23, if anybody loves me, he'll keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him. Listen how beautiful this is. And we will make our home with him. We'll make our home with him. I mean, when I think about going home at night, I'm not thinking about cuddling up and cozying out with my books and my Netflix, right? I'm thinking about my wife. I'm thinking about the person that's there. That's what draws me home. John 15, 9 through 10 says this, as the Father has loved me, this is Jesus encouraging his disciples. He says, so have I loved you. So he said, abide then in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide. You'll be steady. You'll be immersed in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So what you have today with redemption is an invitation to rest. Invitation to rest because nobody can snatch you out of the hands of Jesus if, in fact, the hands of Jesus have saved you. And then finally this, we have assurance. Now something is going to sound discouraging, but it's actually the opposite. Listen to me. The word assurance is impossible to experience or know apart from faith in Jesus Christ. It is an impossible word to experience in its fullest sense. Seriously, think about it. Email me later if you come up with something. Think about all the things in your life and tell me what one of those things has absolute insurance, assurance. I mean, we know, I mean, we know houses don't, right? I mean, let's, let's just like take a peek at Malibu, California right now. All these people that had all these assurances of their house. I mean, it's just devastation. Why? Because of a fire. Because of something controllable that's largely uncontrolled, right? What about your health? Man, aren't we just a minute away from a diagnosis that none of us are expecting? Some of us in our church, they, they, re, they received a word at some point about a diagnosis now that has their life just unalterably changed. I remember the night before my dad died, we were sitting there chatting. 
He felt fine. Nine hours later, I never saw him again. What, what, what's the assurance that we're going to have long lives? I know we have long lives. Why? Well, because medicine's great. Yeah, we don't have forever lives. And some of us are going to have shorter lives. So what kind of assurance can we have knowing that there's no assurance in these things? What about friendships? And friendships are so fragile. One misunderstanding and a friendship just goes south. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. What about marriage? And marriage, we talk about death and we talk about divorce and we talk about fracturing. Marriages are fragile things. All of these things, because literally not one thing in your life is free of potential breakage. No relationship, no job, no child, no physical part of your body. There is no assurance that those things are going to continue the way that we desire them to continue. There is no assurance apart from Jesus Christ. That's why what I'm saying isn't discouraging. There's no assurance apart from Jesus Christ. And even then, man, we fight through, don't we? We fight through doubt, doubt and unbelief. One time Jesus was having a conversation with his disciples. And a lot of his disciples ended up leaving him. But he had this core. He had this 12 and he asked him the question. He said, are you guys going to leave me now? Are you guys going to go? Are you guys going to go after some other things like these other brothers and sisters are going after? Is there something about what I've said that you don't like? Is there something you're not connecting with? Is there something more real and something more tangible that you want to jump after, that you want to drive after, that you want to go after? Peter, of all dudes, Peter says, where will we go? Jesus you have the words of eternal life. So this is what happens to a redeemed soul is we fight through all these things and all this physical pain and all these instances in our life that keep us down and struggling and suffering. And yet we look to Jesus and we say, where will we go though? Because only you have the words of eternal life. And what we have in those moments is we have assurance of something that can't fail and can't break. In Romans 5, that hope will not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is your only hope of assurance. His redemption and rescue is your only way to escape the wrath of God, to escape the terror of a God who is so holy and so pure that Moses had to put a veil on his face when he came down from Mount Sinai because the light of God's backside made Moses terrible to look at for the people. A God so terrible that Isaiah said, I am ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips when he confronted God. How do we escape that kind of holiness and terror as sinful, corrupted, totally depraved humans. We escape it through a person who came in humility to be the only way that we have any hope of assurance. We escape by Jesus who became sin for us. 
Jesus, fully God and fully man, who was our substitute, who took God's wrath on the cross so that we could find rest from total devastation of sin that is destroying us from conception. So there's this third act that we're talking about now in God's divine drama. The hero of every story always goes back to Jesus. The only security, the only assurance in existence for sinners. Redemption is Jesus. And it's an invitation to hope. It's an invitation to hope. I was walking here this morning because I'm better than all of you. And uh, that's always what it sounds like when I say that. I don't mean it like that at all. Um, but I was walking here, and because uh, I, li- I live really close, so it's 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 really it's a great thing for me to be able to walk to church. And um, so I was walking by this house, and, and there was like this there was like this makeshift nativity scene set up, and um, man, it was like these you know the the figure of Joseph and the figure of Mary and. You know, it looked like it was really weathered, and they, you know, they, they. I'm, I'm probably describing one of your houses. I'm totally sorry. And they, uh, it, it was, they had all these like hay bales surrounding it to kind of, you know, depict the manger scene and, and all of that. I mean, I'm just, it just, it, it wasn't, it wasn't slick, right? It, it wasn't like a slick display. Like nobody's gonna Instagram this one, right? Um, and yet we look at that. You, you look at, you look at that humble scene, right? Joseph, Mary, and the baby, all the straw, all weathered. That's the light of the world. That's the light of the world. Right? I mean, who are we singing praise to? Who are we saying, you are my rock and my redeemer? When we go through history, who do we gather on Sundays to celebrate and to praise? Man, it's not like Alexander the Great, is it? It's not Herod the Great. It's not Abraham Lincoln, although I know some people want to do that with him. It's not Lincoln. We don't gather on, on Sunday to praise the name of Lincoln for redeeming us. It's not John F. Kennedy. It's not Ronald Reagan. Whatever. All of these men. It's not. What do we do? We gather to praise the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Because there is no redemption. There is no forgiveness. There is none of what we need to find peace with God found anywhere else. And you know what that can do? That gives us a security and an assurance that is impossible to exist outside of it. Isn't it great that you know that? Isn't it great that you know something that you can carry with you and that you can share to others? Isn't it great that even this morning there is an invitation to rest and to hope that wouldn't exist if we weren't in contact and connection with the God of the Bible, who is Jesus Christ. We've been given redemption. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this work that you have done in our hearts through the life of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for the security and the assurance that comes with knowing Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you are sensitive to even our feelings. You are sensitive and understanding with the trials and the testings of our life. Lord, those of us who are in pain right now, that are suffering, that are questioning everything in their lives, Lord, you're not absent there. 
You don't just leave us to figure it out. You've given us your word. You've given us a person who obeyed your word and lived out this truth so that we would have a way to be secure and assured. So God, connect that to our hearts today. Lord, connect that to our hearts. Connect our hearts to hope and to rest. For those of us who don't know that and have never known it, God, would you speak right now to the hearts of those who have been fighting against that, who have lived in a place where they've tried to command their destiny, but if they just go an inch deep, they know that in reality they've had no control over any of that. Lord, would you speak to the hearts of those who desperately need to acknowledge you as a God of wrath so that they can know the depth of their sin so that they can seek forgiveness and experience your acceptance of them in their life. Would you do that, Lord, this morning? A light has dawned. You've brought us from darkness to light. Lord, let us live in that light. Let us live as people who are flooded with light. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.